Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome everybody to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could tune in today. We're going to be talking about a subject we have never covered in all of our years of Go Green Radio. We're going to be talking about the critical role that horseshoe crabs play in modern medicine. And if you don't know anything about this, you're in great hands because our guest today is Bill Sargent. He is the author of a book that's just come out in its second edition called Crab Wars, a tale of horseshoe crabs, bioterrorism, and human health. And he's going to help us unpack this issue. And we're so thrilled to have him on the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Bill. Thanks so much for joining us. And congrats on the second edition of your book. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you on because I I read the book and, and boy... I I really had no idea um, how vital the role of horseshoe crabs are in modern medicine and how uh, perilous that dependence might be. But you mentioned in the preface to your second edition that the medical uses of horseshoe crabs are almost common knowledge due to quite a bit of press coverage that it's received in the past few years. But honestly, Bill... If John Oliver hasn't done a show on horseshoe crabs on this week tonight, (laughs) I don't know if all of our listeners are up to speed. So I'd like to begin by having you explain how horseshoe crab blood is used in modern medicine. Well, I'll give Stephen Colbert a call and see if we can't, can't we uh, spread the word a little bit? (laughs) Yes. Uh, No. (laughs) Well, and, and we're doing that here. Um, basically, anything that's going to come in contact with the human blood system, whether it's a vaccine or an antibody test uh, or a syringe or a pacemaker, everything that's going to come in contact with the human blood system has to be checked to make sure that it's free of what are called gram-negative bacteria. Uh, and these, these are gram-negative bacteria are often uh, lethal, uh, and so you have to make sure that, uh, you, you know, that, that, that anything that goes in contact with the human blood system is free of that, or you can go into shock. Got it. Got it. Now, I know that, you know, your book talks a lot about a lysate test, and that's where the horseshoe crab comes in. Um, talk to us about you know, what a lysate test is, and I'd love to know a little bit of the history about how it was discovered. Well, it was discovered by accident. Um, There was a scientist called Frederick Bang who was working in his laboratory uh, at at the uh, Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, and uh, he was working on a horseshoe crab, and he noticed that the horseshoe crab sludged up and died. Now, most of us would... uh, you know, say, well, that, that, that's too bad and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, throw the horseshoe crab out and get another from the collecting department and continue with their experiment. But he knew that something interesting was going on. He was a hematologist uh, who had been studying blood at Johns Hopkins, uh, human blood, uh, and he knew that horseshoe crab blood uh, was a little bit different than human blood uh, it's based on copper, so it's bright blue. It's a, it's a really beautiful uh, cobalt color. Um, 
And it also has, uh, well, we have a whole system of antibodies in our blood that, uh, that will go to an infection uh, and fight the infection. What horseshoe crabs have is this single kind of uh, what are called amoebocyte cells, and the amoebocyte cells go to the area and coagulate and keep, simply keep the infection out. So it's a very, very primitive uh, uh, immune system. As a matter of fact, it was about the first immune system in the animal king, uh, kingdom. Uh, but it's worked uh, very well for the past 450 million years. Mm-hmm. Um, so what scientists are able to do is they bleed that blue blood um, out, of the, out of the horseshoe crab. They took, take the horseshoe crab and, and put it uh, in, a, in a wooden rack. And then they use a needle that would be the same size needle that a, that a vet might use on a horse. And they do simply a, a free flow of blood. And when the blood stops flowing, then they stop the, stop the operation. And then they take that blood uh, and they lice it, which basically means you, you add fresh water uh, and, and the cells then burst open. Uh, and then they take those amoebocyte cells out and they make what's called limulus amoebocyte lysate. And it's limulus because the name of the crab is limulus polyphemus. Uh, amoebocytes are the cells that they're after, and lysate is the, is the process uh, of lysing those cells. I think, I think actually that same word uh, when we use lysol, it's because uh, lysol oh. works in the same way uh, by destroying bacteria. I see. And now how does this substance that's extracted from horseshoe crabs help modern medical, you know, folks who are are testing all these devices that are going to come in contact with human blood? How does that help them determine whether or not there are these gram negative bacteria? Uh, well, what happens is they, they take the lysate and they freeze dry it and you get a, you get a white powder. And then mm-hmm. what you do is you're, if you're testing uh, a batch of vaccines, say a batch of vaccines for uh, the coronavirus, you simply add the, uh, you add the, the reagent to the, uh, uh, to the, to the batch of, of vaccines. And if it, if it turns bright blue and coagulates, uh, then you know it's contaminated with gram-negative bacteria. Oh, I see. I see. So this has really turned Lysate into big business, right? I'd love for you to talk to us about the the companies involved and the scale of the industry, because as we mentioned early in the show, I mean, this is something that is required for pretty much everything that's going to touch human blood. So talk to us about the business of, of Lysate. Well, first, I can tell you a, a, a very sad story of my life, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that was uh, there was a Woods Hole scientist who was bleeding the horseshoe crabs in his in his garage, and he wanted to start a company based on the blood of horseshoe crabs, uh, and he asked me if I'd like to like to become a partner, and to become a, a partner, he wanted me to raise about five thousand uh, dollars. And I had no idea how you could, uh, how I could raise five thousand dollars, and I thought it was a flaky idea, so I turned him down. He sold that company about twenty years ago for thirty-two million dollars to a Japanese oh, firm. No. Uh, so, I'm sorry, so, Bill. That's a bummer. <laughs> actually, I was more interested in the story than in than in making money. 
uh, <laughs> uh, which is maybe another sad part of my of, of my life. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so that that is one of the four largest companies uh, that that are making uh, the LifeSafe. Uh, so that's Sega Kaku, uh, formerly called Associates of Cape Cod. Uh, there's another, uh, Bio Whitaker, uh, is in, in Maryland. And then, uh, you have Charles River Labs, uh, are down in, uh, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. And give us some idea of like the dollar figure involved in this industry. Like how, how big is it in terms of, of, of value? Well, it's, uh, I can't be any more specific than saying that it's a multi-million dollar industry. Um, yeah. uh, the companies are, are very proprietary about exactly, about exactly uh, how many crabs they, they use and how much mm-hmm. money they make. We do know that they use about 500,000 crabs a year. Um, and when they, when they do this, they go out and they collect the crabs in the wild uh, and then they bring them out back into the laboratory and bleed them, and then they return them to the wild. So theoretically, you should have no mortality, but under industrial conditions, quite often the truck uh, won't show up and the crabs are left out in the sun, and you can get up to 50% mortality. Uh, the, the companies um, admit that they have about 15% mortality, which makes me think on average it's probably something more like, like 30% mortality. And the wow. other thing that horseshoe crabs are used for is the bait industry. So the next time you have scungili or, uh, or eels, um, they have used the horseshoe crabs. They chop up the horseshoe crabs and put them in the, in the eel pots and in the conch pots for bait. Um, and of course, that's, uh, it, there's 100% mortality uh, if they use them for that. But the, um, uh, so the difference is each crab, if you keep it alive and use it for biomedical purposes, is worth about $1,500. If you chop it up and use them for bait, um, they're worth about 30 cents a pound, but we're still doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that COVID is still on our minds. I think at this time last year, we were all hoping it would be in the rearview mirror, but give us some idea about what, what role horseshoe crabs have played in the fight against COVID. Well, um, basically, everybody who's listening to this program has been protected by horseshoe crabs uh, because um, all the vaccines and all the antibody tests and all the syringes and all the vials, uh, anything that's going to come in, in contact with, our, with the human blood system has to be checked to make sure it's free of, of pyrogens. Uh, and, that's, and that's the way they've been doing it is, is with the horseshoe crab blood test. And, and scientists are, are working to develop a synthetic version of lysate right now. Are, are you in favor of that, Bill? And why hasn't the FDA approved it yet? Um, well, yes, there, there's, a, um, there's a scientist in Singapore, and she's developed a way of using gene splicing uh, to make an artificial form of lysate. And, of course, this wouldn't require killing, uh, killing the horseshoe crabs. Um, and uh, the Food and Drug Administration hasn't uh, approved that test yet uh, because they have about 30 years of, of data uh, using the natural lysate. 
but they've only got, got about two, two years of trials using the artificial form. Uh, so I think they, um, I, I actually, I often don't agree with the Food and Drug Administration, but I think they make the right decision on this one. They, they didn't want to switch horses in midstream in the, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, so they decided to, to hold off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, and I think that was the the right decision, but mm-hmm. we do know that when the pandemic passes, uh, they will uh, probably accept uh, accept the the um, uh, the artificial form, and uh, then you're going to have um, the, the 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 companies know that this is happening. So what uh-huh. they're doing is they're trying to collect more crabs now. Uh, so that they can make money and uh, and meet the oh. demand uh, before the industry goes kaput. Oh boy, we've got to we've got to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to come back to that one. That we can't leave that uh, statement alone. Thank you for that, Bill. We'll be back in just a few moments, folks. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. 
Our guest today is Bill Sargent. He's the author of a book uh, that is brand new out with its second edition called Crab Wars. You can pick it up everywhere that you normally get books. I see it here on Amazon. Easy to get. Bill Sargent is a consultant for the Nova Science Series and the author of 27 books about science and the environment. And he's even taught at Harvard University. So we have quite the subject matter expert with us this morning. Now, Bill, right before the commercial break, you mentioned we were talking about the synthetic version of of lysate and the fact that, you know, after the pandemic, the expectation is that, you know, that that will ramp up. And you mentioned that the companies that are currently working with the natural lysate from horseshoe crabs are starting to collect more and more. And I want you to I wanted to give you a chance to finish that thought and tell us what's happening right now. Well, I think that the companies see the writing on the wall uh, so that they they know that uh, when the Food and Drug Administration uh, approves the artificial form of lysate, uh, the industry is, is going to go out of business and the fisheries for uh, horseshoe crabs is going to go out of business. So I think what they're doing now is they're actually starting to collect the crabs in areas where they shouldn't be collecting them. Uh, so what they're doing is they're collecting the crabs when they're laying their eggs, and they do this uh, in very, very shallow waters right around the full moon high tides of April, May, and a little bit in June. Um, and they're also doing it in places like the Cape Cod National Seashore and some of the other uh, federal lands and uh, up and down the East Coast. And it's illegal to make a profit for, you know, from collecting any animals in a, in a national park. Um, uh, but so I think what they are doing is they are, are starting to collect the, the crabs there when they're mating. And then what they do is they take the females out of the breeding population. You don't see that when you look at a, an area um, where, where you're collecting the crabs because you see lots of adult crabs crawling around. But what you don't see is that the next generation are not being born. Um, they're, at that point, they're, they're tiny. Actually, they're part of the plankton uh, as soon as they hatch out of their eggs. Um, so what they're doing is... is uh, sort of making a gamble that they can, you know, make as much money as possible in the, in the next year or two uh, during the pandemic. Um, and then, and then, uh, then they'll be out of business uh, after wow. the pandemic passes. Wow. That's, that's pretty nuts. And, you know, besides the biomedical uses that we've been talking about for horseshoe crabs, are there other industries that make use of them? Well, the, the bait industry, um, mm -hmm. so they, they use them uh, for catching eels uh, and for catching conchs, and uh, the conchs are, are used for scungili. If you have, a, have an Italian background the way I do, uh, mm -hmm. you love scungili. It's made out of, the, uh, out of the meat of the conchs. Well, you know, I know that you are so intimately familiar with horseshoe crabs that this probably seems like a dumb question, but I'm on the West Coast and I had no idea until I read your book, the answer to this question, but where are horseshoe crabs found and, and how close are they to becoming endangered? Well, you, you find them, uh, you only find them on the East Coast in the United States and you find them from Maine all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula. And you find the largest crabs and the most crabs in Delaware Bay, 
uh, and then they get fewer and smaller as you go both north, uh, north and south. Um, and uh, they're not close to extinction, but they are declining uh, up and down the coast, uh, both because of their use for bait and because of their use for, uh, for lightsafe. Mm-hmm. And, and on Go Green Radio, we like to kind of bring in public policy. You know, what can we do? What, um, you know, is there something we could advocate for? And I'm just wondering if you feel like there are sufficient regulations around protecting horseshoe crabs. And, and I'd really love for you to talk to us about the public policy options that we should be considering. Well, the single most important thing we could do is follow the example of South Carolina. Uh, and several years ago, uh, they made it illegal to use horseshoe crabs for bait. So you can only use them for biomedical purposes. Uh, and this, this was a very uh, progressive uh, w- way of dealing with it. I remember when I, when I first started talking about this, uh, I would go on radio programs, and I expected I'd get a lot of pushback from fishermen. Um, but actually, they called in and they said, no, it's not a problem. There are, there are several other species we can use for bait. Uh, spider crabs is one. Uh, and uh, they, they didn't have a problem with it at all. So I think that, that's the most important thing we can do. Um, also, you can, in Massachusetts, uh, we have a regulation uh, that you're not allowed to, to catch the crabs around four days uh, on either side of the of the uh, full moon and the new moon high tides, and that's when they're coming up to lay, lay their eggs. Uh, so that protects the eggs. Um, and then also all of those areas that can uh, exclude collecting uh, crabs, you know, like like the Cape Cod National Seashore, uh, that that can also be done. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it seems like, you know, and, and this is maybe my naivete, but we hear so much about big pharma and we, we hear so much about, you know, their influence in public policy. And it would seem as though if, if there was a way for them to be able to use the horseshoe crabs without competing, you know, with fishermen who want to use them for bait, they'd be all up into that. Um, have you seen any movement on the part of you know, biomedical groups um, and, and these companies that sell lysate to push for legislation that would make horseshoe crabs, you know, exclusively uh, for the use of biomedical purposes? Um, well, uh, of course, they could, they convinced uh, uh, the South Carolina legislature to pass that regulation. Uh, and yes, they would be in favor of that uh, with other states. Uh, but, but nothing has happened yet. Um, and actually, I, I think you get a lot of sort of screwy regulations. We have one in Massachusetts that they call the rent-a-crab policy, and I've never been able to understand the logic of this. But what they do is they allow uh, the companies, the, 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 they, so the collectors will go out and collect the crabs. They'll sell them to the companies that will bleed them, and then they will give them back to the fishermen to use for bait. Uh, so you're taking what should be 100% sustainable fisheries and making it 100% uh, uh, mortality. Um, so I've, I've never understood the logic of that. They claim that it uh, um, that somehow it's protecting the crabs, but I, I just don't I just don't see it. Yeah. 
you know, we have a lot of listeners who are vegans. We have a lot of listeners who, you know, really care about wildlife. They care about nature. And you talk to us a little bit about what happens um, when crabs, you know, have their horseshoe crabs have their blood extracted, but, um, you know, and that it doesn't necessarily kill them. But can you give us a little bit more detail? I mean, I'd really like to know exactly um, what they're going through as living beings when this is happening. Well, um, I, I, I often make the, uh, make the analogy, um, and, and I, I, I make it around Boston, but, but I'll try to do it on the West Coast. It would be like if you took all the pregnant women in, uh, in Los Angeles and bled, you know, took 30% of their blood out and then released them in San Francisco and told them to walk back to Los Angeles. Uh, that's about what we're doing with the horseshoe crabs. Um, and so you get the mortality uh, both from the handling of the crabs and from the bleeding. And then simply, you know, after they've been bled, you release them, uh, and some of them, some of them die right away. Others will dig down into the sediments and wait a while. Uh, some will some will swim off, but you're, in each one of those steps, you're getting more and more and more mortality. Uh, so um, yes, they, they, it, it's that's a huge amount of strain for them. In the old days, they used to uh, exsanguinate them. They'd simply take all the blood out, and of course, then you'd have 100% mortality. Uh, so just by by taking just the free flow of blood out, uh, that's making it somewhat safer. But it's uh, it's not pleasant for the horseshoe crabs at all, uh, and it's it's quite it can be quite deadly to them. You know, and this is maybe a silly question, but I mean, is there an indication that they feel pain? I mean, anybody who knows what happens to a lobster when it's cooked, I mean, they've heard about the screams. I mean, you know, it's it's not like they just you know um, extinguish quickly. Is there any indication that the horseshoe crabs are are feeling pain under duress, um, that sort of thing while the procedure's going on? I, well, you know, they'll, they'll, um, they don't move very fast, but, uh, yes, I I think they're feeling pain. Um, you know, they have a, they have a sensory system, uh, and you know, there's an old myth, you know, that, uh, that, that fish don't feel pain, uh, when they're, you know, they grab onto a hook, but you know that they are, uh, they just can't scream. Uh, but you could just see, you know, as they're thrashing around that they're in, in considerable pain. Um, so, yes, that, that's really um, why I got into the, uh, started looking into the story and writing the book is I was concerned about the horseshoe crabs. Uh, and I got into a lot of arguments with the, uh, uh, with the companies and would go back and forth and back and forth and, you know, uh, they would say, well, we're, we're saving the lives of millions of people. And I would say, well, you're not treating your animals very well. And we went back and forth. And then finally, I realized, well, you know, we're actually both right. Uh, and that, in fact, what you need to do is you need to protect the, the, the lives of horseshoe crabs. So they, in turn, will protect the lives of, of humans. Uh, so in the end, as a matter of fact, I, I gave a lecture a number of years ago at the New England Aquarium, um, and afterwards a guy uh, came over and said, do you recognize me? And, and I, I didn't right away. I hadn't seen him for years, but he had been the former president 
uh, of the associates of Cape Cod. And we went out and we had a, a cup of coffee. And we realized by the end of it that, you know, after about a dozen years of fighting about all of these things, there was really only a dime's worth of difference between us uh, in the end. We had both considered each other's arguments and, and uh, come up with kind of a compromise. Boy, compromise. That, that has become a dirty word, but it's music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be the way that we were able to get things done and take everybody's opinions into account. We're going to have to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. You know, we just finished the last segment and we were talking about what horseshoe crabs have to go through in order to uh, have their, their blood drawn in order to help us with modern medicine. Everything that touches human blood is tested um, with lysate, which is uh, a byproduct of the blood that comes from horseshoe crabs. But Bill, I'd love for you to talk to us about the role that horseshoe crabs play in the larger ecosystem. Um, they don't just exist to help human beings develop pharmaceuticals. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. Um, uh, they're actually considered to be a keystone species. Uh, so there's all kinds of other animals in an estuary that depend on them. Primarily, they, they depend on the horseshoe crab eggs. Uh, 
Um, and what they do is they lay the eggs in the sand, and then the, and then they at the next high tide, a month after uh, they've been laid, uh, they will hatch out, and then they're part of the plankton. So they'll be drifting through the waters, and they're like little tiny ice cream cones. Uh, everything mm-hmm. likes to eat them. Um, you know, fish, uh, zooplankton, uh, you know, and anything that can get their hands on them uh, will, will, will eat the horseshoe crab eggs. Um, and they're particularly important to about a half dozen endangered species of shorebirds. Uh, the most familiar one is uh, are, are red knots. And the red knots time their migration from, they, they migrate all the way from Tierra del Fuego and the tip of South America all the way up to the Arctic Circle where they start laying their eggs. But they time their migration so that 80% of all the red knots in the world are on the, uh, the beaches of Delaware Bay during the full moon high tides of April, May, and June when the horseshoe crabs are, are laying their eggs. Uh, and then they'll eat 40 tons of horseshoe crab eggs, and that will give them the fuel to make the next leg of their, of their migration up to the Arctic Circle so that they can start laying their eggs, uh, so that the birds can start laying their eggs right away. Um, so if uh, so that you know they're very vulnerable because if you had an oil spill or something like that that killed off uh, you know the horseshoe crabs as they were laying their eggs, uh, you would wipe out uh, a, a whole species, an endangered species, uh, almost overnight. Um, so it's a, there's, a, there's a weak weak link in that in their migration, uh, and the same is true with uh, several other species of, of endangered birds. Well, and that leads me to my next question. I mean, if horseshoe crabs become endangered, what will happen? I mean, both to humans and the larger ecosystem, what would be the fallout? Well, it would be devastating to humans uh, because all of a sudden you wouldn't have this, uh, this test uh, for gram-negative bacteria. Before you had the horseshoe crab test, all the pharmaceutical firms would have large colonies of live rabbits. So they might have seven or 800 uh, live rabbits that they would hold in cages. And if when they were developing a vaccine, they would uh, inject the vaccine into, the, into a rabbit. And if the rabbit kicked over and died, they knew it was contaminated. Um, and that, that was the test right up until 1976 when we had uh, what's often called the swine flu fiasco, uh, mm. because there were a couple of recruits in Fort Dix, um, uh, New Jersey, that came down with what looked like uh, the beginning of a, of a swine flu epidemic. And the whole country went on alert, uh, and President Ford wanted to show that he could do something other than, than uh, pardon President Nixon, uh, Nixon so he decided to inoculate every man, woman, and child in the United States against swine flu. And then what happened is nobody got swine flu. Uh, it, it never never developed. But hundreds of people started getting very serious neurological problems. Uh, and, uh, and then they discovered it was because, uh, it was because the, the, the vaccines were contaminated with gram-negative bacteria. And the way they found that was by using the horseshoe crab test. And then they realized that the horseshoe crab test was faster, it was more sensitive, it was easier to use and less expensive to use 
than the live rabbit test. Uh, so then the Food and Drug Administration approved that as the standard test uh, for gram-negative bacteria. Wow. You know, Bill, in some ways, your book is a sobering reflection on the unintended consequences of scientific progress. Did you mean for it to be that? Uh, well, yes. Um, there certainly were all kinds of unintended consequences uh, of this new industry. Um, you know, basically, it's a good industry because it's saving, it's saving millions and millions of human lives. Uh, but it certainly had unintended consequences on the horseshoe crabs uh, and on the ecosystem and on uh, several other species that, that depend on the, on the horseshoe crabs. Well, and it's one of those things, and I'd like to hear what you think about this. You know, we, we come up with a, a quick solution to things. And then, you know, and, and I'm even seeing this in something totally unrelated. Um, the California water system is and our infrastructure is in crisis. And at the time that the state water project was built and the center, Central Valley water project were built, you know, they were solving a, a problem for humans. And, and as a result, there's been a lot of problems for wildlife and the ecosystems. And we realized at some point that, oh my gosh, we rely on those ecosystems, not just the water. And, and I think sometimes we do this, you know, we, we come up with solutions that are great in the moment, but they're just not sustainable because uh, they can't last forever. And, and I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think that the stark reality is staring us in the face, uh, you know, with the Glasgow conference. Uh, and, you know, even though we see all this happening, we as a human species don't seem to be able to, to do anything about it. We can't, you know, now is the time when we should be cooperating to uh, cut back on our car carbon emissions. Uh, and in fact, what all that's happening is that everybody's squabbling and saying, well, they're not going to do this and they're not going to do that. Uh, it, it's a it's a fairly uh, depressing uh, comment on our on our species. I think uh, there was a Dr. Uh, James Lovelock, who was a very uh, eminent scientist, um, basically said that uh, if humans uh, if humans don't solve uh, this environmental crisis, uh, something like uh, a virus is going to solve it for us. Uh, in other words. Uh, a, a virus will get rid of humanity before humanity uh, destroys the destroys the world, uh, and I, I think there's a there's a real danger in that. Mm -hmm. You know, in addition to writing the book that we've just been talking about, Crab Wars, you wrote Terror by Error, which is the first book to really look into whether COVID came about because of a lab accident in China. Talk to us a little bit about that book and how that book and Crab Wars are related. Well, um, you know, it was really when I was writing about the uh, the horseshoe crab industry that I that I saw that you know people were cutting a lot of corners uh, and and taking risks uh, and that there were lots and lots of accidents. Uh, if you sit down for an, an over a beer conversation with with almost any scientist and you ask them, you know, have you ever had an accident in, in your lab, they'll roll their eyes and say, you know, of course we have. Uh, 
and as a matter of fact, some of the some of the most important discoveries have been made because of accidents. Uh, not only the the horseshoe crab uh, uh, story that we related earlier, um, but things like the discovery of penicillin came about because. Uh, uh, some spores of penicillin had floated into a laboratory when the when the scientist was on vacation. He left the window open and he left the <laughs> petri dish out there, uh, and the spores landed in the petri dish. And he came back and he saw that the the spores uh, had been killing the bacteria, and he realized that he had the basis for for an antibiotic. That's crazy. I, I I've heard that story before. I love it. I, I mean. You know, these happy yeah. accidents, serendipity. That's what we call it, serendipity. Uh, you yeah. know, I, well, I have... To actually... Go right ahead, uh, uh, to, I, I, uh, to get back to your question. Um, uh, so, you know, from looking at this, uh, I was actually, I was working on a book about um, tick-borne diseases, uh, things like Lyme d- disease and babiosis, and a lot of health experts think that they actually came about uh, because of um, research that we were doing on biological warfare. Uh, there were a number of labs, you know, throughout the country where this was being done. Uh, for instance, one instance uh, that occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis is there was a young CIA recruit, and he was told to report to a small uh, airport. Uh, down in, in uh, the southern United States, and they didn't tell him what to do. They just simply told him to, to get on a plane, uh, and he went on the plane, and they flew out at night, and when they got over Cuba, uh, the guy said, okay, the pilot said, okay, open that box in front of you uh, and throw the contents out. And he opened the box, and he looked in, and it was teeming with hundreds of thousands of ticks. Uh, oh, and gosh. so he threw it out the window, and they continued back. And, and about a week later, his son spiked the 105-degree temperature and got very, very sick, had to be hospitalized. And he came back to his commanding officer, and he said, was um, there any connection between my son's getting uh, ill and what we did that night? And his commanding officer said, well, I, I can't give you any details all I can tell you to do is burn all the clothes that you were wearing that night. Uh, oh, and there were, um, there was a, a Willie Bergdorfer who was a Swiss-born scientist who was working uh, uh, for the United States, would actually use uh, Swiss watchmaking tools to inject uh, the, the ticks uh, with various microbes so that they could be, they could be used as weapons. So anyway, I was working on a manuscript for that book uh, when all of a sudden COVID hit. And as soon as I found out that it took place in Wuhan that had the only what's called a uh, level four biocontainment facility, I said, wow, that could be the same story. Uh, and I haven't seen anything that's that convinced me otherwise. So that was, it actually turned out um, that that was the first book that looked at the idea of a lab accident. And we, we were talking about um, uh, Stephen Colbert earlier. And of <laughs> uh-huh. course, when my book came out, nobody would touch it. Um, you know, everybody, it was at the time, you know, people were concerned about conspiracy theories. Trump was right. still in office. But finally, uh, Stephen Colbert had John Stewart 
on his program, and John Stewart said, "Of course, it was it was uh, uh, <laughs> the origins of, of COVID was because of a lab accident." Uh, so all of a sudden, um, it, it, it became now everybody's talking about it. But yep, the funny thing fun. was when I when I wrote the COVID book, nobody wanted to talk about it. Then I wrote the horseshoe crab book. And everybody wanted to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting how that happens. Yeah. And maybe yeah. a few years from now, Terror by Error will be, uh, you know, a, a textbook in, in some course. Um, you just never know. Timing is everything. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have more with Bill Sargent. And we'll be right back after this, this quick break. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Uh, we've been talking with Bill Sargent, um, who's the author of Crab Wars. Um, it's fascinating. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking horseshoe crabs. Why should I care? Everybody in the entire world should care right now because they've been critical in the COVID response and absolutely, um, you know, without here in terms of their importance to what we've been doing to fight this pandemic. But right now, Bill, everybody's talking about supply chain because all of a sudden it's getting tough to get items that we used to be able to get the next day on Amazon Amazon Prime. 
And yet one of the most important species to modern medicine hinges on a single supply, the horseshoe crab. Do you have any confidence that the lessons that are about to be learned by the consumer-facing businesses that are going through this supply chain crisis are going to be realized by the medical industry as well? I mean, a single source in your supply chain for something so critical is a terrible idea and a huge risk. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's the ultimate uh, supply chain problem um, because, as you mentioned, uh, it, it's the only commonly used medical procedure that's based on a single species of wild animal, and that wild animal is decreasing up and up and down the East Coast. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a real problem, uh, and it would uh, it would be a disaster for uh, for the health industry. Um, uh, and already, the companies are having trouble finding enough horseshoe crabs. Uh, to meet the demand um, in just during the past two years uh, mm-hmm. when the demand has been so high. And, and they're starting to collect some of the crabs in areas where, uh, where they shouldn't be collecting them. Wow. You know, in your opinion, Bill, because you have looked into this and you have studied this, and we were just talking about your, your other book, um, Terror by Error, which looks at the COVID genesis, um, COVID-19 genesis, in your opinion, based on all the research that you've done, do you think that the world, and particularly the U.S., will be better equipped to deal with future global medical crises after COVID? I mean, have we put measures in place that will endure? Uh, no, I don't think we have. Um, and, uh, you, you know, there, there, there are really two theories now about the origin of COVID. One is that it came from a lab accident and the other that it came from nature. And I think the, contra- the controversy is not so important. I think what we should be doing is reacting as if both of those possibilities uh, are true. Um, so if it came from a lab accident, we should be having all kinds of uh, uh, bans so that we're not doing things like gain-of-function research uh, in, in laboratories. Um, you know, we already had those bans in the United States, but we continued to sort of outsource uh, that type of research because we were funding it in China. And if, uh, if the coronavirus came from nature, then we should stop encroaching uh, on nature so much. Um, the problem is we're, you know, we're cutting out uh, um, uh, palm trees uh, and uh, for the palm oil. Uh, and we're using a lot of bush meat, and uh, so we're we're getting too close to nature that way, uh, and so we're getting, um, you know, we're coming in contact with the reservoir species, with the things like the bats uh, that that um, that have the coronaviruses. So I mm-hmm. think we need to uh, stop doing some of those practices as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's funny because we've done a lot of shows on, on those topics as well. You know, the, the um, deforestation and, and, you know, the problem with palm oil and, um, you know, th- there's just a lot of research. I mean, it, when we did the show on palm oil, we even talked about a little Girl Scout um, who didn't want to sell her Girl Scout cookies because they used palm oil. And she was aware of what was going on and helped to raise a lot of awareness about it. So, um, yeah, I think I think her thoughts are really Greta valid. Thunberg in, in the, yeah, in the, in the, <laughs> exactly. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, 
you know, Bill, I want to get personal for a minute because you have been able to create an amazing career for yourself. And it really began with a childhood fascination. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how you first became interested in horseshoe crabs and how in the world you, you know, you made a career out of that fascination and, and that pull towards, um, you know, that, that interest. Well, well, E.O. Wilson would say I never outgrew my bug stage. Uh, <laughs> you know, as, as a kid growing up on the Cape, I was always intrigued with horseshoe crabs. Uh, and what I would do is I would row out at night under the full moon during the high tides, and I would, uh, you know, see these, uh, you, you know, hundreds of horseshoe crabs crawling up out of the water. Uh, all you could hear was sort of the little scraping of their shells, uh, as they were trying to, to uh, mate and, and lay their eggs. Uh, and you had a sort of an, an incredible sense of creation, uh, and it was, it, was, it was very, very moving. Um, and really it was from those early childhood uh, uh, memories that I, you know, that I continued, and, uh, uh, and then I started writing about it, and um, I've been, that's what I've been doing you know, for more years than I care to think. <laughs> you know, Bill, I work with a lot of high school and college students. I, besides doing Go Green Radio, my, my day job is CEO of the Go Green Initiative. It's a nonprofit that works with schools across the country. And a lot of them are, are really worried that in order to have a successful career that pays a decent salary, they're going to have to work on things that really don't interest them or have a lot of personal meaning to them. And based on what you've been able to achieve, based on, you know, the the, the childhood interest that you fostered, what advice do you have for them about, you know, how they could view their career and, and lessons you've learned in your own career? Well, I think, I think you need to, to do what you love. And when you do what you love, you'll do a good job at it uh, and the money will come. Uh, it was probably easier for my generation um, because I graduated uh, from college, uh, you know, right after the 60s and the 70s. Um, and there was, uh, people were turning away from the corporate life and mm -hmm. uh, you were dropping out. And um, a, lot of, a lot of people um, that would have gone into urban environments went into rural environments. And they mm -hmm. actually, they sort of combined their new environmental ethic with the former conservation ethic. Uh, and I think they improved a lot of rural communities because of that. Um, I used to write for, uh, for the local newspapers. And at that time, the local newspapers, uh, you know, it, it was a real, um, they were having a, a renaissance. Uh, and it was great fun writing for the newspapers. There was a lot of competition between, yeah. the, between them to get the best stories. Uh, so, so I do cool, think it Bill. was easier probably in those days. Maybe so. Maybe so. But you know what? Rural America still needs great citizens. So, you know, that's another idea. There, there's plenty of latitude and, and, and options still available. Bill, thank you for being with us. Thanks to our listeners for being with us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.